Okay, everybody, thank you for coming this evening. Welcome to the Oxford Martin School. Um, I'm Ella Adlin. I oversee the research portfolio of programs that we fund here at the school. I'm delighted to host Jens Coed Madsen to, tonight. So Jens is a classic example of an interdisciplinary researcher. His research focuses on how people form beliefs and why they act the way they do. His main areas of interest are information integration, source credibility, dynamic decision-making, the dissemination of misinformation, political persuasion, and complex environmental information systems management. And he's taken those interests into a wide range of contexts. He's an Oxford Martin Fellow in our program for Sustainable Oceans and a postdoctoral fellow at the Complex Human Environmental Systems Simulations Lab in the School of Geography. So he works on simulating the behavior of fisheries there to best understand complex and dynamic models. But he's here tonight to discuss his book on the psychology of micro-targeted election campaigns. And this examines the capabilities of increasingly sophisticated models of persuasion in elections and its implications for democracy. So Jens is going to speak for about 40 minutes and we'll move straight into a question and answer session. And we'll have a drinks reception in the Illy Cafe afterwards and you're all warmly invited to it. And lastly, just to note that the lecture is videoed, as is the Q&A, so um, it is going to be filmed and live webcast, so bear that in mind. If you don't want to be filmed, don't answer, ask a question. So without further ado, let me welcome Jens to the stage. Um, yeah. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for coming on a Friday night instead of having a pint in the pub. Uh, I'm quite impressed that I could actually manage to get so many people, so I'm absolutely delighted. Um, I've massively misled everyone. I am going to talk about the halibut, and it is going to be a long talk about sustainability of oceans. Uh, so uh, without further ado, the tuna. Um, no, but all kidding aside, uh, my job um, here at the University of Oxford and the Oxford Martin School is to sort of understand what makes a person form a particular viewpoint of the world um, and what makes that person act in a particular way. And I've been doing this from a computational perspective, which means I develop mathematical models um, that I then test and try and refine in order to explain how beliefs and behaviors um, sort of form both individually and so socially. Um, so while this is something that could be applied to fisheries, as we've been doing in my spare time, um, I wrote this book um, on the psychology of micro-targeted campaigns. Um, so this is something that is near and dear to my heart uh, because it's something fundamentally democratic and it's something where I could apply the same kind of modeling principles that I've been working with um, in the fisheries um, sort of uh, perspective, but to information theory and to, um, to electoral uh, decisions. And this sort of ties back to my original uh, sort of true sort of foundation of where my undergraduate degree comes from, which is rhetorical theory, the art of persuasion. Um, so basically, I've always been interested in what makes someone tick and what makes someone believe what they believe. So why did I write this book? Um, sorry. So first of all, um, I think we've all heard uh, a lot about micro-targeted election campaigns in the last couple of years, in particular with Cambridge Analytica. I'm going to talk about this a tiny bit, uh, but I'm going to try and veer away from Cambridge Analytica as much as, possibly, as possible. Uh, because whilst it's an interesting case study, it might not tell the full story. Um, so I was really interested in figuring out an uh, investigation of the underlying micro-targeting principles. So basically, what is it that allows a modeler uh, with data about specific people to build models of those people to persuade them of something or to make them act in a particular way? For me, that's a fundamental question to our democratic sustainability. Because if there are modelers out there and companies out there who can target our uh, innermost desires, innermost beliefs, and address us in a way that is incredibly persuasive to us. Um, it is worth knowing how that um, amount of power can be, uh, can be used and pot potentially abused um, in a democratic system. So in order to understand the degree to which our information systems are fragile and vulnerable to misinformation, we need to understand the psychology of individuals as well as how these uh, models can be used to generate these individualized models. So the intended use of the book is not academic per se, although obviously it builds on academic work that I've been doing um, for the past decade and uh, work that I've been doing with colleagues. Um, I wanted to write a book 
that was more geared as a broad uh, perspective, which can be used as, uh, for NGOs, journalists, students, uh, and even regulators and network providers to understand the type of modeling that they engage with. Um, in particular, if we want to regulate the use of data in politics, we have to understand what these models can and cannot do. And there's a lot of hyperbole around uh, with a lot of newspaper articles saying data can predict everything, or we, the human mind is so infinitely complex that mathematical models can say nothing. Like, why do you like uh, Nescafe coffee when Illy is better or whatever? Um, like, there's always going to be hyperbole on both sides of that aisle. And obviously, as with most things, the truth probably lies in the middle. Um, where data can say something about your psychology, but it probably can't say everything. Um, so if we really want to understand how we can improve political discourse, uh, which I seem to sort of feel there's a kind of at an all-time low at the moment, uh, unfortunately, um, but like, let's hope not. Well, let's hope it is at an all-time low and it's bouncing back, I should say. Um, but if we really want to understand how we can improve political discourse and the kind of democratic institutions that we have, we have to understand the fundamental nature of the psychology of the citizens and of the electorate in order to understand, A, how they can be modeled and persuaded by the people in power, and B, how we can set up institutions and protections to make sure that those are not being abused in an unlawful manner. And finally, I think it bears saying that if we don't do this at a university where all of our information is disseminated publicly, it will be done behind closed doors. Like what was done at Cambridge Analytica, for instance, was not publicly available. And the whole principle behind doing a thorough academic study of persuasion, a thorough academic study of micro-targeting, is that we can get the results into the hands of people who might want to consider who to vote for in an election and why we want to structure society in the way that we want to. So obviously, the most famous case of micro-targeting in the last couple of years have been Cambridge Analytica. I'm sure that you all know it. Um, it was the 2016 um, uh, so-called hacking of the US presidential election in which a London-based company used personalized data to draw up individual profiles of uh, citizens in the US to optimize their persuasion attempts to sort of, yeah, basically do a, a shrewd marketing campaign. So, that's a really interesting case study, and it got a lot of attention. But I think it's an inadequate example. Um, it's a good historical case, um, but it's inadequate to understand the fundamental principles that underpin these models and these ways of using data um, to, to uh, generate persuasion campaigns. Why? Well, first, because case studies can't be generalized. They represent a single data point, and the social cultural uh, context and the candidates of any given election will differ and they're necessarily unique to the situation. If you think that you can retrofit a model of what Cambridge Analytica did in 2016, or even 2014 when they were involved in the midterm elections, you are sadly mistaken, because the situation is going to be different. It's not going to be Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, presumably, uh, although some rumors has it that she will run. Um, but let's see. Um, so uh, you can't necessarily um, rely on that individual case study. Furthermore, you don't know exactly if Cambridge Analytica really influenced the situation. Would Trump have won regardless of the involvement of Cambridge Analytica? It is literally impossible to say, given the amount of uh, confounding variables that are in that situation. Secondly, uh, their methods are very specific to the situation. So for instance, the API that they use to generate personalities of individual citizens is no longer available. So if you're going to go into a big discussion about like, oh, we should protect the API of the citizens, Done and done, problem solved. Um, but that doesn't mean that the intention of getting that data is not out there. So um, they appeared as well to have relied on some pop psychology. Um, so the effectiveness of which is unknown. Um, and further, um, journalists and people who have been involved in Cambridge Analytica may have an interest in beefing up uh, the impact of Cambridge Analytica. So uh, maybe a bit of sensationalism. Um, so then. Uh, further, in future campaigns, elections may have better or worse data because the, the, the type of data that we have available for any given person um, will constantly shift. Like, for instance, in 2016, no one was talking about TikTok. That's a really important app right now. And for anyone who doesn't know what TikTok is, it's a massive app, uh, social media app that is out of China, uh, which is collecting a lot of data on people. 
Um, so if we don't understand what TikTok does in a fundamental principle about garnering data um, from individual uh, citizens, we risk running into a retro sort of perspective way of doing uh, regulation and analysis. So in that case, like, we need to understand the micro-targeting in principle rather than in case uh, And that's a really key point. So while I applaud all the journalism, and it is a vital piece of journalistic work that has been done on Cambridge Analytica, it would be a bit like saying, um, how do we design the best football team to beat Real Madrid? Well, I will, I will show you. Because I am Danish. I am from a tiny little town called Odense. And in a glorious fall day, or maybe actually, sorry, spring day of 1994, um, Odense Club went to the mighty Bernabeu and beat Real Madrid 2-0, knocking them out of the UEFA Cup. Shaboom! So what does that mean? Clearly, if we just extrapolate from um, a single case study, it means that like, clearly we have to wear yellow if we want to beat Real Madrid. Um, that's, that's a really good explanation. Uh, we probably have to have a lot of Danes. Uh, that's a really good explanation as well. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, if uh, any of you have ever followed the subsequent endeavors of my beloved hometown team, you will have realized that they are not at the pinnacle of the European scene, uh, lifting the Champions League trophy year after year. Uh, so extrapolating from one case may be a slightly sort of dicey thing to do. So what I want to do today is basically talk about three aspects of micro-targeting. Um, I want to talk a bit about uh, how you can model subjectivity, uh, because that seems like a nebulous thing, um, but it has been done and can be done. Then I will make this as a transition into what I call analytic micro-targeting. Uh, so this is reportedly what uh, Cambridge Analytica did. Um, and these are great models about segmentation of peoples, uh, but we'll see some of the limitations as we go into the third section, which is dynamic micro-targeting. Um, and then we'll end with a bit of Q&A. Um, so part one is models of subjectivity. So how to capture your beliefs. Because obviously we know that individual differences are absolutely critical. Um, obviously everyone's political leanings differ. Um, you can have a wide, a, range, a wide range of beliefs that vary within the population, both in terms of what they think is important and what they think is credible or not. So for instance, some people might think like, oh, what really matters to me when I choose a candidate is the economy um, and it is uh, their stance on jobs and labor market uh, policy. Whilst another person might think like, what really matters to me is people who want to ensure women's rights or who want to understand socioeconomic consequences of poverty or who want to safeguard our society against environmental disaster. So those people will have different proclivities towards what they really value in terms of what's important in this election. But they will also have different personal beliefs about the likelihood of outcomes. So for instance, if you talk to a climate change denier, um, and if you talk to someone who has uh, looked at the data um, and is a climate change believer, um, you might have very different uh, subjective uh, perspectives on the likelihood of particular outcomes. Like, for instance, what's the likelihood that Miami will suffer from severe flooding and, and uh, sort of weather in, uh, conditions in the next decade or 20 years or 30 years? If you ask a climate change denier, they might say, like, well, do you know what? I don't think that's very likely. Because, like, even though there's been a couple of, like, storms or whatever, like, weather comes and goes. Like, there was an ice age once, there was, like, a solar flare or whatever. Um, and they're entitled to their opinions, and they're entitled to their subjective perce perception of the reality. Um, similarly, or comparatively, if you talk to someone who believes in climate change, they might say, like, yeah, I expect uh, those kind of extreme weather patterns to increase with time because uh, we're getting into a worse situation in terms of climate change. So one sort of perspective of this is, like, oh, like, human beings are too messy. We're all subjective. We're all just, like bulldozing down the road of, uh, of our own personal beliefs, and it's kind of impossible to, to conceptualize and model. Um, but there's been some strides in uh, cognitive psychology to address this. So I'm going to exemplify this by four pathways to personal beliefs. Um, so, um, and I should note that um, in all of these uh, pathways, um, I, along with colleagues, some of which are in the room today, Toby, um, 
we have been doing uh, work on what is known as Bayesian modeling, and I'll explain what that is in a bit, um, to try and account for how people use their subjective probability uh, sort of estimations of the world to predict how they will change their belief given new information. But there's loads of ways you can get new information about the world. So for instance, you can have a personal experience. So if you are uh, just fired from a job and you're asked to um, evaluate the volatility of the labor market, you might say, like, it's pretty damn volatile. Um, I am not feeling good, and I'm not feeling good about the prospects of my future. Um, that's an entirely sensible thing to say if you've literally just been canned, walking away as you do with your P45. Um, so there's obviously personal experiences that will drive a subjective perception of how the world looks. But it's not the only way that we're getting information about the world. Uh, probably most of the information we get about the world is from other people. So we read news reports, uh, we read uh, meteorological reports about whether or not it's going to rain in Oxford this afternoon, uh, which I believed it was going to be, uh, because I looked at the BBC. Um, so I consulted a source uh, who could give me some report about something that I was interested in, some hypothesis. Now, I can have a greater or lesser extent to which I believe in that source. So for instance, if a drunk person stops me in the street and goes like, the economy is going to crash tomorrow, um, I'm going to go like, yeah, mate, that's, that's, a, that's a really solid prediction, man. Um, like, pop back to the pub, please. Um, but I might not revise my beliefs about it like, significantly. Comparatively, if the Bank of England um, comes out with a report saying the economy is going to crash tomorrow, um, I'll probably take that a bit more seriously. Why? Because I, I uh, trust that they are going to disseminate information to the best of their knowledge, and I trust that they have some expertise in that particular area. So it makes sense that I would skew my belief or adjust my belief revision differently, depending on whether or not I trust that particular source to be a credible um, source of information for that particular domain. So trustworthiness, for instance, is something that cuts across domains. Um, I would trust my brother in almost any situation, like barring uh, maybe playing a game with him. Um, but would I tr uh, have a high rate of expertise for everything with my brother? No, that's very domain uh, dependent. On some things I know that he knows a lot, and on some things I know that he doesn't know that much. So if he uh, advises me on something where I know, like, okay, he's got a lot of expertise in this, he's got my best interest at heart, so I trust what he's saying, I'm going to listen to him. But conversely, if I consult him on something where I know he knows nothing, um, then even though I trust him, I'm not really going to adjust my beliefs so that much. Uh, because my subjective perception of uh, his expertise will differ in that case. So you can see that like, the subjective assignments of probability that we can give to people can start influencing how we're going to treat information from that source. So this is just uh, to sort of say in more sort of lay, uh, kind of just words rather than in maths, that we have our subjective estimation both of the particular case that we're considering like the hypothesis in question, how, how likely do I think this is? Then you've got some information coming in, which you can think of as more or less strong. Um, so like you can think like, oh, um, if I'm gonna, uh, if every uh, billionaire, uh, like a report came out saying every billionaire has sold their house in London, uh, like this week, you go like, ooh, there's something going on here. Like something, something is afoot uh, in terms of uh, London's housing market and you would probably adjust your belief in the, in the volatility of that housing market accordingly. But that's because the strength of the relationship between the evidence and the hypothesis is quite strong. Comparatively, if I see a bunch of, sort of semi-random stuff that has little to no relationship to that hypothesis, I can see a lot of information, like butterflies fluttering their wings or something like that. But I'm not really going to adjust my belief in that hypothesis because I don't think there's any relationship between those things. Now. The key difference here is I may think that there's a, a strong causal relationship between two pieces of information, or piece of information and a hypothesis. But another person might think that that is a spurious uh, causality. So we may disagree subjectively on the prior belief, as in like, how likely do I think this is before I listen to any information, yes? Then we can disagree on the degree to which this evidence is strong or weak or positively or negatively correlated with that hypothesis. But then we can also disagree on whether or not that source is trustworthy. So for instance, let's imagine that you have a climate change denier who thinks like, do you know what? 
climate scientists are paid by universities to tow a particular company line, much in the same way that people from Exxon and Shell are paid to tow a particular party line or company line. They may then think like, well, there's no operational difference between the credibility of a scientist and someone from Shell or, um, or uh, other petrol companies. In which case, they should operationally adjust their beliefs in the exact same manner, um, given reports from scientists and reports from um, oil company executives. And those can be subjective again. Thirdly, you may think that people are dependent on each other, as in, like, I think these guys have talked to each other before giving this report. Or you can have different perceptions of causality. So all of this, these kind of different perspectives on how evidence links to hypotheses, how sources are related to each other. Like, for instance, if you see uh, three people and they all say um, the economy is going to boom after Brexit or something, or the economy is going to crash after Brexit, um, then it makes a hell of a lot of a difference if you learn that those three people are drawing the, same con uh, the, drawing the conclusions from the exact same report, because they're basically just all saying the exact same thing from the exact same report. In which case, the real thing that you should worry about is what's the credibility of that report, not the amount of people who independently say what they say, or dependently in this case. So the computational path to people's subjective beliefs has been fleshed out by this wonderful uh, priest um, called Thomas Bayes. Um, there's also a, a French mathematician called Laplace, uh, and like he actually formalized it a bit better. So, but I mean. Seeing that Bayes is buried in London, I'm going to go with Bayes. Um, so what this basically tells you is that you can conceptualize people's subjective beliefs as a spectrum between 0 and 1 on hypotheses prior to any kind of evidence as related to the strength of the diagnosticity of the evidence as related to that hypothesis. And you can integrate those two to figure out, given your prior belief and this information, what should you now believe? depending on your subjective understanding of that relationship. So to give you an example of this, um, here's a model that I've been working with for a while, uh, which tries to conceptualize exactly what I was talking about earlier. Uh, P of T and P of E are probability of trustworthiness, probability of expertise. P of H is the probability of the hypothesis before you hear a report from that source. And P of H given rep is what's the likelihood of this hypothesis, given that, I'm, uh, that this source is giving me a positive report about this. Um, and we've done loads of testing on this. And just to give you a couple of examples, this is us trying to predict uh, posterior degrees of belief after um, someone gets a report from a source. And as you can see, the dotted line and the um, uh, solid line are almost identical. And those are the predictions versus ob observations. Similarly, I did a study in 2016 on, um, on political candidates, and we could, con uh, we could predict for Republicans and Democrats alike, exactly how they would change their beliefs given reports from candidates, given their subjective perceptions of the credibility of that person. So it is possible to do mathematical modeling of people's subjective beliefs. But the question is, how do I start to populate those models? Like, how can I start doing my analytic micro-targeting um, sort of segmentation of that population? And there's loads of ways that you can do this. So one thing is traditional segmentation. So for instance, if you know that certain uh, demographic information or certain information about the population um, is correlated with a particular thing, like so for instance, these are income, education, gender, shopping habits, or hobbies. So for instance, if you are an American and you buy a foreign beer, you are 83% likely to be a Democrat. So if I know, if I get access to your uh, target loyalty card, which uh, may be sold, um, and I go through your shopping list, I can sort of see like, oh, this person is buying a lot of organic products. This person is buying a lot of foreign beer, like slightly troubling amount of foreign beer. Um, but you get my drift, that you can start building up models of what is this person like? What is this person probably going to value in terms of prioritized beliefs? Like, is this person conscious about environment or not? Uh, like, if you just have like a slab of red meat, um, you're probably not like the massive environmentalist uh, that you would otherwise propose to be. Um, same thing, you can do digital segmentation. Um, so like, for instance, what kind of uh, apps do you use? Like, how, um, how do you use your um, phone? 
where do you move in the city if I can geolocate you? I can see like, oh, you went to the Extinction, Re Extinction Rebellion uh, every time they were in town. You probably care about the environment. Um, we can do uh, word clouds. So for instance, this um, is a cloud that's been um, segmented in between Democrats and Republicans. So it turns out that in this analysis, if you say Democrats a lot in the tweets, you're probably a Republican. But if you say Democratic, you're probably a Democrat. So imagine that I'm going to scrape your uh, Twitter account for all the words that you've ever posted in your thousands and thousands of tweets, and I can start doing um, analyses of what you probably think about things, um, what do you care about, how do you write about it, and you can start correlating those with subjective perspectives on the likelihood of these things. Like, for instance, if you're like, we're all going to die uh, after, like, um, in 10 years, hashtag environment, the likelihood is that you probably have a pretty strong like, perception on the prior on, on climate change, yes? So you can train models uh, to exactly do this. Uh, same thing with your social position in the network. network. Um, you can also use uh, psychometrics, um, such as personality measures. Um, the wonderful Lee DeWitt, uh, who is also from the University of Cambridge. Uh, feel free to boo. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, from uh, Cambridge, uh, he's done a lot of stellar work on personality measures. But equally, there's sort of moral foundations, um, heuristics and biases like confirmation bias, and the need for closure, as in like how willing are you to accept that something is open-ended and not sort of settled. So you can imagine that you can start drawing a lot of data from people, either by um, asking a representative sample and then correlating those responses with other people in the population who exhibit the same kind of traits. So if you learn that, like, for instance, the beer example, that people who buy foreign beer are more likely to be Democrats. Then if you can get hands, your hands on uh, a lot of data about people's shopping habits, you can have one data point that pushes them towards the Democrats. But then they also own a SUV, which maybe push them in a different direction. Um, so you can, get, um, like you can start building up these individualized models where um, you build up um, a perception of that person, um, which you can then later use to segment the population. Um, importantly as well, um, you can separate your campaign into what is uh, like beliefs and behavior phases. So like the beliefs is how do you change your belief, which is dependent on how you see the credibility of the source, the, the likelihood of that evidence, your prior priorities for policies. Uh, but it's also important to know that some people need to go out and vote for your candidate. So you want to have a campaign phase as well and the get out the vote phase, which basically says, I know that you're in my base, uh, so I'm not going to contact you through the persuasion phase, but I am damn sure going to send a, uh, like a, a person to your car, to, uh, to your house, to remind you that it's election day, because I want you to turn up. So this requires persuasion. This requires get out the vote. Uh, finally, uh, you can, in uh, constituency-based uh, elections, like the UK and the US, you can start segmenting uh, people along the lines of, do you even matter? Um, so, for instance, if I find a Republican in California, or a Democrat for that matter, it doesn't really matter, because that state is going to be Democratic no matter what. So you're not really going to, you're going to waste your money if you're going to go and campaign in California. So in, uh, in the States, uh, and in the UK as well, we have a first-past-the-post constituency-based system where you can um, weed out the people who don't really matter, i.e. the people in the safe states, or the safe seats. Uh, in America, this has the added wrinkle, uh, wrinkle of um, not every state is equal uh, in the eyes of the founders. Um, so I, I took the liberty of calculating how many people you need per electoral vote in, uh, in the various states. And that looks like this. Um, and it turns out that you need, like I think it's like 180,000 people per electoral vote in Wyoming. But you need to convince 744,000 Texans uh, to get a single electoral vote. So that basically says some states are more important than others. So armed with this information, you can start doing analytic voter segmentation. So if I really want to figure out who am I going to talk to, when am I going to talk to them, and what am I going to say to them, you're going to uh, throw all your data into this um, sort of model generation machine, which basically, as said, just tries to draw up correlations between what a person is likely to believe in, what a person is likely to find important. And this can be done by trawling through your digital data, trawling through your shopping lists, your Google searches, um, like your activities on, on apps, um, like how many TikTok sort of uh, little uh, uh, memes you post a day, for instance. 
uh, maybe inversely correlated with your likelihood of voting, uh, I, would, I would imagine. Um, so you can start drawing up these uh, um, segmentation lists. So let's say that you want to figure out like what is the subjective belief of any kind of person according to the model that I've been drawing up. And bear in mind, you can have a really bad model, in which case you're going to be really bad at predicting people. Um, and this is why I'm interested in the principles underpinning micro-targeting rather than the specific case of, say, Cambridge Analytica, because it's really difficult to tell how good their models were, partly because it's a single case study, but also partly because they probably haven't published exactly how they did everything. So there's a lot of hearsay, there's a lot of sort of rumors and stuff going around. So fundamentally, what this kind of a perspective means is that you can start drawing up uh, these Bayesian uh, belief networks, which here I'm just going to take focus on a sig single subjective belief. So like, for instance, what's the likelihood that I'm going to vote for this guy or that guy uh, or this candidate or that candidate? So in this case, I have um, segmented first to the left anyone who has a very strong preference for my candidate, uh, so above 0.7 according to where my model deems that person to be. Or in other words, that's my base. Um, like those guys are pretty safe uh, in my uh, sort of modeling perspective. Conversely, to the far right, um, uh, no pun intended, um, you've got people who are definitely not in my base, uh, but who are definitely, definitely in the other person's base, in, in the opposing candidate's base. They're not really that attractive either, because it's going to take a hell of a lot of effort to draw them to my side. But then you've got all the delicious people in the middle, um, all the swing voters, the people who haven't really decided, am I going to vote for candidate A or candidate B? Um, then you can start uh, winnowing away what your model thinks they, uh, they think about your candidate, credibility-wise. So for instance, on the left-hand side, do they think positively of my candidate? Uh, will they respond positively to reports from my candidate? Or do they think negatively about my candidate? Um, in which case, you probably shouldn't contact them, even though they're swing voters, because you might just annoy them. Like Ted Cruz going door to door. Um, like, what an unlikable guy. Um, so in the middle, for instance, um, you can see that uh, you can segment it into uh, more positive versus less positive. And in the base that is uh, adversely positioned towards your candidate, you may want to segment it not as a 50-50, as in like, oh, just mildly positive, but like wildly positive, like above 0.75. So this may be something where, say, you want to uh, persuade someone that climate change is happening, and you know that they strongly disbelieve it, but you know that they really respect you as a, as a person or a scientist or as a source, then you may want to actually contact those guys, even though they are already pretty far on the other side. So for instance, you can ask yourself, should I contact this person? The base, not so much, because they're already in your pocket. Uh, here, you should probably forego the people who hate your candidate or who doesn't really like your candidate. And you should only contact the people who kind of like your candidate. Um, same thing here, where I beefed up the uh, uh, proportion to which, uh, the degree to which they really should like your candidate before uh, you should contact them. So now you can see, like, we've segmented the, uh, the population into six bins two of which are now going to be contacted. Um, do they have an influence on the election? Well, yes or no. So like, let's say that um, this guy in the middle, who actually likes my candidate, but he lives in California. Who cares? Um, in that case, I'm going to leave him. Uh, same thing, uh, obviously, for the people who strongly like your candidate, uh, but who are sort of marginally towards the other person's base. Uh, what's the likelihood of voting? Fun fact, you can buy that in America. Um, you can't buy what they voted, because obviously that's secret. Uh, but there is records as to how many times you participated in elections that you were eligible to participate in. Um, so I can get a pretty decent estimate of that. Um, so let's say that anyone who is more than 75% uh, likely to vote, um, I can segment my population into that as well. Um, and anyone who's um, less than that. So now I, I think, OK, who should I contact in the get out the vote phase? So in the last couple of days before the election, who should I really try and motivate to get out of the house to vote? Well, I should definitely like, reach out to my base now, uh, because they are the ones that I really want to make sure it turns out on election day. Um, so for instance, in, um, uh, in 2008, uh, one of the strategies that Obama um, invoked was a pretty clever one. So um, there was um, some communities of African-American uh, citizens in 
not Illinois, that was a safe state. I think it was Iowa, one of the neighboring states. Um, and obviously, they'd done their legwork, so they knew that if they get 1,000 African-American people to turn out for the, uh, to vote for, um, for the election, probably 997 of them are going to vote for Obama, and like three of them are going to vote for John McCain. Um, so what did they do? They didn't contact them in the persuasion phase, but they just drove in buses after buses, and they didn't bother, bother like, like persuading people or like uh, convincing people, like, vote for Obama. They were just like, do you, are you registered to vote? Great, let's drive you to the election poll, poll right now. Um, because they know from their modeling that most likely, if you just get 1,000 people, that's going to be a really, really key thing. So that's a kind of get-out-the-vote strategy that separates clearly from a persuasion strategy. A uh, similar thing, you may want to focus on the people who are unlikely to vote and forego the people who are very likely to vote. So if I know, like, okay, I've already persuaded you uh, to vote for my candidate, and you are 93% likely, likely to vote, I don't really want to bother uh, knocking on your door come election day, because you'll probably be there anyways, like, because the one election you missed was because you were on a holiday or something, or in, uh, ill. Um, then you can use the uh, further subdivision of the psychometrics, um, so like individual psychological differences, like for instance, personality measures. So you can see how this creates this beautiful patchwork of further segmentation, further, further segmentation, where you can figure out what does this person believe in? What's the likelihood of credibility of that guy? Uh, should I contact that guy for persuasion? Should I contact that guy for behavior, like for the get out to vote? And what can you do with this? Uh, let's say that you generate like, 80 bins of people that you can then filter them into uh, for personality, for beliefs, for priorities of political sort of leanings. Well, you can start A-B testing that. Um, so you can start running experiments on what is the most effective way of contacting that subdivision, that sub, 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 sub segment of the population. Is it using like a particular type of word? Is it to use like a particular message type? So one uh, example, um, is like if you have three guys in, in America and they're all kind of sort of democratically uh, Republican leaning, but maybe slightly on the fence, and they all care deeply about uh, guns. If you have someone who is uh, strongly conscientious, you might uh, contact them and say like, Americans are law-abiding people. We keep our country safe. We we know how to follow like and adhere to rules. Um, so guns uh, protected by the Second Amendment should obviously stand. Like, that's a very legalistic, sort of, like, civil kind of an argument. Then you uh, may have a pro-gun uh, message for extroverted uh, people, which is sort of like, guns are uh, part of American way of life. We hunt together, we barbecue together, we're sort of like, yeah, all big sort of hunter-gatherer, like, hunter sort of frontier kind of people. And that might work really well for them in the A-B testing that you're continuously trying to refine to make sure that the way that you're contacting that subsect of that voter will be as, as sort of spot on for their proclivities psychologically and belief-wise as you, as you possibly can. Finally, like if you have a deeply neurotic person, you can go like, oh, like the Democrats are coming for your guns, um, which is obviously flare-up. Um, so imagine that you want to zoom in on a state um, here Columbus, Ohio, um, and you go on a street level. Um, so you can start drawing maps of this because obviously this personal data is linked to your personal uh, like profile. And I know where you live uh, because there's registries of that. So what I would do as an analytic micro-targeting uh, campaign person, I would then start to figure out like, okay, there's a bunch of houses who are irrelevant. Um, they're irrelevant because they hate my candidate, uh, or or they they or they they really hate my issue and they hate my candidate, and they're unlikely to vote. Uh, like, forget about these guys. Then there's a bunch of people where you may want to think about, like, oh, these guys are on the fence. So, for instance, you've got the Smith household, where my model says, like, oh, probability of voting, like, pretty high, 93%. My data is kind of distributed, um, like, as illustrated by this um, graph. Um, like, you have, like, 200 data points on that person, and they, they're not, like, really clear on whether or not this person is a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, from Twitter, I know that you talk a lot about economy, environment, and women's rights, uh, and some psychometrics, in which case I'm going to try and persuade you with something that is specifically designed for that sub-segment of the population as driven by the data analysis that I've been doing. Similarly, when it comes to get out the boat, uh, you get these guys. So, like, for instance, the Daliad House, uh, where the probability of voting is pretty low, but 
all for all intents and purposes, the data analysis that you've been doing suggests that the person is strongly in your camp. Um, so you know that this is someone who probably likes your candidate, but is unlikely to vote maybe because of dis like discouragement of like or disinterest in the political system or something like that. In which case, that person gets a, a get, gets a get out the vote uh, message. So you can start building up this um, sort of fascinating picture of a whole of a nation where you can zoom in on street level and figure out exactly how you're going to approach that person, who are you not going to approach, and who are you going to approach for the get out the vote um, part. So this is kind of reportedly what uh, Cambridge Analytica did. They sort of mined deeper and deeper and deeper, um, which is great. Um, it's a very uh, strong perspective on basically marketing purposes. Um, like it's not anything more fancy than sort of swanky marketing. Like it's basically just like, what is this person like? And then throw in a dash of psychological profiling. Um, again, I will say this doesn't protract from, uh, uh, detract from the idea that you can get increasingly sophisticated models as we go along. But as we all know, human beings are not stuck in a well. Uh, rather, we are interconnected. Um, so we constantly talk with each other. And what's the main danger of increasingly just digging down into a well, uh, metaphorically speaking, is imagine, like for the completely sort of imagined example, that you would have a presidential candidate who had, let's say, a racist um, sort of segment. I know it's a completely made up example, obviously, but like, go with me for, 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 the, for the purpose of illustration. Um, and then you want to figure out how am I really going to motivate this guy, like these guys to come out and vote? Like, I really need to motivate my base. Well, that may be to send an incredibly, like, you can sort of refine and refine and refine and optimize and optimize and optimize and figure out, like, oh, I just need to send them a supremely bigoted me message about Mexicans or something like that. That's going to get them out of the door. But what happens then in this imagined example? If one of these little guys goes on Twitter and goes like, ooh, the president is doing something really great here, uh, hashtag get out of my country kind of a thing, um, and it goes viral, then everyone in the middle of the political spectrum who might find that to be abhorrent are now pushed away from your candidate, and it works counterproductively. Uh, so the deeper you go, the larger you increase your probability of hitting something that might not be palatable for someone who's not as strongly within your base. And the problem in this modern day of age is that we can talk to each other via Twitter, via Facebook, via Messenger, and stuff like that. So we have agency as citizens. So what I want to end the last sort of like five, 10 minutes of the talk about is how to pers uh, perspectivize this as a dynamic thing rather than as an analytic thing. So information flow on social networks. Um, I've been doing some work on this uh, with uh, Toby Pilditch and Richard Bailey, um, who may or may not be here. Um, but um, I've been doing work on this on echo chamber formation, on micro-targeted um, campaigns. And the idea here is that you can simulate individual citizens and their connectivity and see how things play out once you release your campaign into that um, environment. So this, take, this takes uh, into account the agency of citizens to share information with each other as well as receive information which means that there's, less, um, like there's more of a give and take. It also takes into account people's social network position. So who is really important here? So one excruciatingly important person in the recent midterm election um, was Tay-Tay. Hey, hey, Tay-Tay. Um, uh, Taylor Swift, uh, for people who don't know her, is an American singer-songwriter. And she tweeted out, remember to register to vote. And within 24 hours, 49,000 people had registered to vote. That's a pretty good return. Um, but she lives in California. Any kind of analytical marketing, uh, micro-targeted segmentation model worth their salt would have disregarded her any day of the week. But there's a huge uh, power to be had from understanding the perspective of what is a social network uh, and how information flows, how is, uh, how is influence um, sort of uh, leveled on information uh, networks. So one way of, um, of modeling this is what is known as agent-based modeling. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but suffice to say that you simulate a bunch of individual agents, and you can make them as heterogeneous as you want. Uh, so you can sort of populate them with whatever kind of um, models that your analytic micro-targeted campaign says that they have. Then you contact them with each other, and you set them into social networks, so you have interactions and you let it loose, and you see how they're going to share information, how they're going to uh, act uh, once the election campaign is over. 
So an example of this is we wanted to see if we can uh, simulate echo chamber formation, um, and we could. Um, I'm going to skip slightly over this, but the main points taken away from this paper is that even rational agents can become stuck in echo chambers. Um, when we increase connectivity in the social network, the problem becomes worse, not better. So suck on that, Zuckerberg. Um, and education broadcasts get less effective in dispelling echo chambers with time. Um, so this is just an example where you can show that you can use these dynamic models to test some really fundamental problems of uh, democracy and information flow. So one way of uh, conceptualizing an election, instead of conceptualizing it from this tree branch that goes down, is to conceptualize it as a dynamic model. We have some voters who talk to each other, you've got some news pundits trying to influence them, you've got some other campaigns trying to influence them as well, some external groups, and they are also responsive to what goes on within that social network. So let's say that there's a shift in, uh, in the perspectives of the citizens that may cause the other campaigns to shift their strategies, which may mean that you have to switch your strategies. So there's a constant sort of give and take and a constant interaction between like, those peoples and the campaign strategies. So um, this all sort of points towards a completely different perspective, where instead of constantly borrowing down into deeper and deeper wells and deeper and deeper, like stronger and stronger isolation between the bins of citizens, you conceptualize the heterogeneity and you populate it and simulate it within a model. You give them some possibilities for interacting with each other and you throw them uh, like some campaign uh, strategies and you see how do they react? How do they uh, respond to this? Like if I go out and send that like bigoted message, how does the electorate sort of form around that? How, what's the sort of vibe on Twitter? Um, there's no way you can do this as an analytic model but there's every which way that you can do this mathematically through simulated dynamic models. Further, if you really want to be shrewd about it, you can wrap this kind of a model uh, in what is known as an optimizer. So you can find the optimal way of uh, managing that complex human-human environment system. Um, this is something that we've been doing in fisheries, uh, where we are trying to figure out what is the best way of managing these um, dynamic systems. So if we have some uh, closing re reflections, um, on what do we need to sort of think about when we think about micro-targeting. Um, first of all, we need to understand that the main modifier to, um, to whether or not these models are effective is access to data, skewed resources, and access to experts in modeling. Because if you have really bad modelers with really bad data um, and, um, and almost no money to run it, like, good luck on your micro-targeted campaign. It's got to be shite. Um, but if you have really good data, like extraordinarily good data, really good modelers and all the time in the world to segment that electorate, including their social positions and their dynamics, you're, you're in pretty good standing. And as data becomes more abundant and psychological models become more precise, we may expect candidates to increasingly make use of this. Uh, so what can we do? One thing may be to modify campaigns access to data. One proposal I have is make any uh, data available to any campaign publicly available for any other campaign. Uh, because then if you collaborate with, um, say, external lobby groups who uh, give you data, then everyone gets that data, and they can all do the same modeling on that. Uh, at least that would uh, limit the degree to which you can buy sensible, like, sensitive data uh, and get a, 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 an advantage and a, a strategic edge from doing that. Also, obviously, we can enforce limits on campaign spending. Uh, in the UK, we have limits, thank God, um, but they don't in America. Um, but this should also include any collaborators, because otherwise I can just go like, oh, my buddy over here has a billion dollars, uh, but it's not me, like, it's my super pack pack. Um, so this would also limit, obviously, access to development expertise and force people to think about their money. Um, and also, when considering all these negative aspects that have often been trumped out when we're discussing these micro-targeted campaigns, why not also think about what we can do with these methods proactively? So, for instance, optimize communication of scientific findings to people who don't believe in climate change. Uh, we can generate better campaigns for ca uh, public health and environmental issues like uh, recycling, because that under uh, underpins uh, or relies on a fundamental understanding both on the psychology of the persons who are uh, the targets of those campaigns, but also their social fabric that, that binds them and what causes that behavior. And finally, we can use these models to measure the um, uh, vulnerability of information systems to in misinformation. Um, so to conclude, um, Bayes' theorem can enable modelers to model um, subjective beliefs. We've been doing this with 
prior beliefs with perception of causal relationships, with perceived credibility, and how they see the dependency of various sources. And we're getting increasingly good at predicting what people will do uh, once they are exposed to particular, um, parts of, uh, particular types of information. Uh, secondly, we can use personal data to populate sort of like Bayesian models. This includes demography, uh, digital traces, psychometrics, influence and election, and anything else. You can imagine this kind of a list will grow as the um, models become more sophisticated. Campaigns obviously need to understand beliefs as well as behavior changes because you can't just assume behavior following deterministically from, from beliefs. So these are two very separate things and also social things, I should say. Um, analytic models fundamentally can't account for pushback from citizens, i.e. agency. Um, so precision can backfire um, if you increasingly burrow your way down, which is what Cambridge Analytica reportedly did. Uh, belief formation and behavior and social networks are complex and nonlinear. This is really crucial. Um, they're heterogeneous, they're dynamic, they're adaptive. But we can use these agent-based models uh, that we've been using um, to capture this. Um, and this is why I preemptively said before that point, um, which is basically that we can optimize over the management of these kind of models. And finally, it's worth remembering, uh, it's not always the amount of data that can save a bad candidate, Jeb. Uh, because he had the access to the most data in 2016's uh, primary election, uh, and look where that got him. Uh, so thanks very much for listening, uh, and I will take some Q&As. Um, so if any, yeah, raise your hand if you have a question, or just if no one has questions, whine. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. Uh, I should say as well, um, I was asked to say, wait until you have the microphone before you ask the question, because otherwise it won't be recorded. Um, you talk about uh, dynamic and analytic ways of targeting campaigns. How much do you think that analytic campaigns are being used? And if they're not being used very much at the minute, how much of a threat does this put on camp like the, um, like how uh, moral campaigns are in the future? So how much are analytical models being used right now? Yeah. Um, oh, um, I, would, I would hope that every kind of every political campaign uses analytic mo uh, modeling. Because like, if you think about analytic modeling, it's kind of just the degree to which you can segment and sort of understand your electorate. And that could just be, like James Carville had the most simple uh, analytic model. It's the economy stupid. Like that's, that's an analytic model of just like a one issue thing, you're gonna borrow down that. But then you can splice that into two. So any kind of, kind of data-driven segmentation or ideologically-driven segmentation is kind of an analytic model. Now, how moral it is, I think, depends entirely on, obviously, the campaign, in the sense of like if the analytic campaign that's being done is to, say, decrease criminality um, or increase uh, recycling, I think that's a pretty good thing. Um, but if it's to uh, like sell more coal, I might not uh, personally think of as that as a moral thing, but I'm, I'm kind of keen that this should be disassociated in principle from morals, in the sense that like, this is a tool through which you can sort of like, segment and optimize persuasion campaigns, both analytically in a more sort of simplistic way or dynamically in a more sort of interactive way. Um, and in whichever way, purpose that you use it, like, it can be good or bad. It's a bit like studying medicine in a way. Like, who better to poison you than a doctor? Like, they really know. Like, they really know. Um, but who, who better to save you as well? Uh, yeah, uh, two down there and then some up here, sorry. Thanks, Jens, for a great and scary talk about <laughs> microdata management. My question is, um, what experience do you have with the dynamic micro-targeting models like the ABMs that you have used? with data, because uh, the one you mentioned was about more empirical and stylized facts, I think. Yeah. Uh, have you used any of the dynamical models with actually... With training them on, on yeah, actual yeah. data? Not yet. Um, but, um, spoiler, um, I am A, in the process of doing so, um, and I have just submitted a grant application which would exactly do that. Uh, so take stuff like digital tracers and calibrate and validate dynamic models to figure out how, for instance, the network self-prunes, as in, like, who do I follow and who do I unfollow as a product of, like, whatever they say on, on Twitter or something. 
Um, one more down there, and then I think maybe some up here. Thank you for the talk. Uh, I appreciate that you weren't trying to sort of get to right or wrong on it, um, but if I could draw you slightly on one of your suggestions, which was that we might open up whatever data one campaign has to every campaign. Mm -hmm. Do you not think that that's perhaps overreach in terms of what an electoral commission or whatever sort of body is actually doing? For example, one party or campaign might have newspapers on their side and we wouldn't enforce that a newspaper gives equal coverage to all campaigns and by enforcing sort of the data that each campaign can have access to are you sort of artificially leveling the playing field so um like for me those are two separate things as in like the degree to which a newspaper is on the side of a candidate or a party is more about like the general support from say like the telegraph for tories or uh, the guardian for um, labor um but what i'm talking about is more about if i get as a campaign if I get socioeconomic data because I've got like a bucket load of money and I can disproport or unfairly sharpen my models to the extent that like in this sort of marketplace of ideas, I get all th things else being equal and advantage over my slightly less rich candidate. Um, the proposal would be to sort of force that campaign to share the data to limit the incentive uh, to buy incredibly precise data that costs umpteenth millions. Um, so it's, it is an artificial leveler of, uh, of the playing field, but that's kind of the point, is to ensure that there's more of a level playing field for getting your ideas out there. Uh, so I think we should take some questions up here. Uh, the two of you, sorry. I understood what you were saying about... Oh, sorry. I understood what you were saying about uh, the economics of campaigning. Mm. How you, you had these various people in various silos, but how do you get them in there? How do you know, how, do you know how to address me? How do you know how to address the kind of audience that is here? You were, you were very, very specific about what you do with the information when you've got it, but less clear about how this information arrives in forms which can be manipulated. Yep. I, what did I say to my friends last night that would change your thinking? And so on. So, um, so like for instance, um, the, the things I mentioned about um, your uh, democ uh, demographic data. So if I can get access to like your, your shopping habits or your Googling habits. Um, if I have, how? Uh, the DOSH money. Um, like, uh, a lot of this is for sale. Um, so, in, in particular in America, um, a lot of these personal, personal data is for sale. Um, so, like, I don't know if everyone does it, but like, there are some um, companies where they have loyalty cards. When you shop, that's pretty valuable data. Um, so, yeah, that's one way. Then a second uh, method of doing it is scraping. So if I go into uh, someone's Twitter profile, if it's public, and I just scrape all the tweets that they've ever done, and I run it through a machine optimization sort of algorithm that picks out whether or not they are more environmental words or sort of democratic words, Republican words, I can then again get a, a version of that person. So let's say that I've got your Twitter data, I've got your shopping data, I've got your Google data, I've got like a whole host of different types of data sets, and I then merge those to sort of try and figure out what are you roughly, like where are you roughly in terms of your political position? That's how, they, that's how um, data can be used for that. Thank you for your talk. Um, so you mentioned at one point that uh, Google searches uh, could essentially be bought. My impression is that... I, I don't know if they can, but in principle, um, that can be gained. My, I, I don't know if they actually sell it, I um, should say. My impression is that they sell very broad categories. Yeah, probably. And so if someone told me recently that it was as few as 12 categories. Um, but if you could help us understand a little bit more about that, I think it would be helpful. I, I don't know how much da uh, data Google sells, I'm afraid. Um, but again, for me, that's a case-specific thing. Because like, right now, say that Zuckerberg, may, uh, like from Facebook, may hold off from selling particular po uh, data points. That is in no way a conceptual guarantee that the next big company, because Facebook is dying, obviously, um, like, but the next big company is social media. There's no guarantee that they would have the same principles. So, like, Facebook closed that API once they realized it was there. Um, but 
that in, in, in principle doesn't safeguard us in any kind of way, which is my point exactly, is that we have to understand what is the data that is out there about each person, how is it uh, regulated, um, and how is it potentially sold? Um, if we don't understand what that like, fundamental marketplace of data acquisition is, we are just like uh, struggling, in, uh, we're blind in, in a way, in terms of regulating this kind of stuff. Um, I should say, I promised uh, at six o'clock to say that there was a wine reception, uh, so I'm gonna take two more questions. Sorry, it's three past six. I would love to take more questions, but um, uh, yes, um, uh, you and then the lady in the front. Uh, just a quick, quick, quick question. That the, you have mentioned that you can use this model for positive reasons, for like yep. recycle coverage. Do you know any cases that are actually used except for election campaign? Um, uh, and and quick question that is UK. Uh, you mentioned that in US, the more data is available. Yeah. Where does the UK stand in terms of election? How susceptible um, are we? In until tomorrow, we're standing pretty well. Um, because um, there's EU regulations on GDPR, uh, which limits uh, the transaction of personal data. And um, yeah, so ask me again on Monday. Uh, <laughs> it would be my, my depressing answer. Um, so right now, like in Europe, there's a lot more protection. So you couldn't probably do what they do in America for two reasons. One, because the um, access to data is more restricted and more protected, but also B, because like, um, literally the campaign finances are restricted much more severely. Um, I can't remember exactly how much um, each campaign is allowed to spend, but it's in the sort of tens of millions, um, like maybe 40 million or something for a, a political campaign. And that's across the board, you cannot spend anymore. That's it. Like comparatively, what was it, $5.6 billion was spent on the last midterm election? Like that's a, that's a magnitude, and it's not just like the size of the country. Um, that's just an open flood. Yes. And other cases for besides Oh, sorry? Any other cases that are used this kind of Oh, um, I mean, again, in the same way that I uh, responded to uh, that woman down there, um, I think every model, uh, every campaign must have some kind of an idea of the kind of audience they're talking to. But I would doubt that many campaigns that are publicly funded would have this amount of, uh, of sophistication. I doubt it, but again, I, I haven't run it, so I, I can't say. I've been wondering whether devices like Alexa play a significant role in information gathering. Um, they do. Um, so like Alexa, for instance, um, are trained, uh, like, uh, like, I mean, the specific, again, I, I, I hasten to not make too big a point of specific things, like case-specific things. But like in Alexa, you have to go into a subset of your uh, settings to allow it to not use your vocal data to train it uh, on itself. Uh, so it's constantly listening. Um, but it's for the purpose of machine learning optimization of uh, picking out exactly your voice. Um, so again, I don't think Amazon is selling that data, but there's nothing in principle that would stop them unless we have strong regulation and strong sort of top-down uh, management from a from a societal perspective, which is exactly why I think this is a, a key thing. Like I, I hasten to say, I don't want to be doom and gloom because like like analytic microtargeting campaigns and, and dynamic microtargeting campaigns are great in getting your message out, and if you have a good message, that's fine. Um, but the uneven playing field, the impact of money on elections, and the skewed access to data gives a disproportionately unfair advantage to people who are moneyed. Um, which is a democratic problem. So as a society, we shouldn't think like, oh, these data-hungry machines can do everything. Like, they can't predict what shoes I'm gonna wear today. Maybe, maybe they can, uh, but like, probably not. Um, so they can't predict everything, but they also can't, they are not like nothing, so they can predict something for sure. Uh, and the degree to which the, those models are sophisticated is just increasing what they can predict. Um, and this is why I think this is a key area of research. But yeah, I think, Ella. Um, I think that was a great conclusion and a really informative but unsettling talk. And um, my, prior, my prior belief about Danish football teams has changed, so. 
Um, so thank you all very much for coming. There is the wine reception. I'd also like to draw everyone's attention to a talk coming up next Monday, 28th, on the geographies of the platform economy with Professor Mark Harrison, which um, proves to be a very interesting one. So once again, thank you, Jens. And, uh...